All right, this one, this this one, I'm super excited for. You know, lately we've been having a lot of cool guests on uh, that are very interesting to me. You know, the ones that I've been pulling on are, are a lot of the ones I I just personally want to hear the story of. And yours, Tony, is really freaking crazy, and I can't wait because we're gonna we're gonna get into two very good parts in this show here. You know, the first half of just who you are and what what has happened in your life in the last 22, 20, 21, 23 years. Um, and then what you're doing now, because a lot of our audience is going to be super fascinated with, with what you're into right now. But first, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Lieutenant Colonel retired Tony Schaefer. Tony, welcome to Free Range American. Hey, Jared. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And, uh, uh, I, I've watched your podcast and I, I am, uh, I've been looking forward to coming on with you. So thanks for having me today. Oh, I can't wait, sir. This is going to be, I, I mean, I just to unpack what happened 20 years ago is like, I'm, I'm already amped on it. So yeah. I'll let you jump in, like, like jump in from the beginning. So yeah, I'm a retired intelligence operative. Um, I actually retired in 2011. God, where's the time gone? <laughs> was then I had 30 and a half years in by that time. So I had wow. my mandatory retirement date and I started doing stuff in the eighties long before most people even knew we were you know, up to doing things. Uh, some of my early assignments uh, were over in Germany chasing terrorists in the mid eighties. Uh, one of my first assignments was strange enough, one of my friends and colleagues, Bernie Carrick, Bernie and I, uh, his first assignment on the NYPD was in Manhattan down in, uh, in, uh, on off of 42nd street. I was in, uh, in Brooklyn as a very young intelligence operative in 86 working counterterrorism. So it's kind of interesting that, uh, so much of some of my friends, uh, work, uh, we shared kind of the roots and then fast forward 30 years later, you know, I'm, I'm, I did some things, uh, that relate to 9-11 I was a whistleblower. Uh, talk about a life-changing event and things never being the same. Uh, they don't tell you when you become a whistleblower that, uh, you know, once you blow your cover, you're not going back. So, you know, your, your clandestine career is over, but it, it was something I enjoyed for the time I did it. Uh, we did a lot of cutting edge things. Uh, I ran the first undercover cyber unit in DOD back in the late 90s, early 2000s, before anybody knew what the internet really was or what it could do. Uh, you know, there's something we now talk about called weaponized technology. Uh, we we were all looking at that back then, uh, and so I've I, I'm gratified uh, that I had a very um, a very complex, very uh, weird to use Tim Parlatory. Tim Tim's one of my <laughs> attorney. Tim always talks about having weird clients. Well, I had a, a weird career, which was uh, was you know very much marked by doing some very interesting things over thirty and a half years. So I have to ask before we jump into this massive story of of what you were doing leading up to 9-11, when you were an intelligence officer in the 80s, uh, did you have, what, do you know anything about the submarine world back then? Because that seemed like when things were really crazy, like, like, like the things that you guys were doing as far in the intelligence community was like nothing that we've seen in the GWAT. Like, sure. yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I think uh, one of the things I've been trying to get Hollywood to pay attention to is kind of the secret history of the Cold War. Uh, and to that point, I mean, um, there's things 
things that I still can't discuss to this day that happened that um, were very interesting. I mean, uh, everything from watching the Russians destroy our intermediate range nuclear missiles to the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. Uh, to the Navy stuff, to the Air Force stuff. I, I used to do something called foreign material acquisition. One of the things I, 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 I've done everything from being undercover as a stuntman on a movie called Big Bad John, which is based on on the, the song. I'm not kidding. I was part of the Stunts Unlimited crew, <laughs> stuck in a hotel with them because I couldn't be exposed to the Russians. We were there monitoring. So I've done everything from being a stuntman to a gray arms salesman. Because as a gray arms guy, I had to go out and buy without the Russians knowing we were buying it, uh, their equipment. And we would take that equipment and study bring, it, bring it through, and we would test it in the Nevada test range. So, you know, one of the schemes I was doing, uh, Jared, we were trying, I was, it was a proposal to steal a MiG 31. You know, I, I am not joking. So, well, I mean, I'm very familiar with the petting zoo out there. So you're essentially saying that you were one of the people that was out there getting the equipment that lives in the petting zoo today. That, that equipment doesn't steal itself, itself Jared. <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> so that's my point is that, uh, you know, I, some of the stuff we did has still not been documented. I think uh, put together Miami Vice in 20. Four. That was the 80s for me. So <laughs> that's super cool. All right. Well, let's let's get to the elephant, the elephant in the room. Yeah. Tell us what what happened back then and then what came out once you started raising kind of the flag going, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. So um one of the benefits of being uh, in a special mission unit and running it uh, in areas no one has ever done before. You get to go do things and see things that no one else has done. So people have a hard time believing this, but it's the absolute gospel truth. As a reservist, my, I, I was actually a civilian employee, but we as a, we had to maintain our military status. Uh, the reason I'm known as Lieutenant Colonel Schaefer is because I had to testify as Lieutenant Colonel because Defense Intelligence Agency wouldn't allow me to testify as a GS civilian. So the Army said, F y'all, he's going to testify. I mean, they put me in uniform and I testified. So uh, during that time as a reservist, one of my, my assignment was Special Operations Command. And, and when I was down there for a tour in 1999, my reserve tour, uh, I was asked to uh, brief. I, your audience ain't going to believe this, but it's absolutely true. I was <laughs> asked to brief uh, the commander of Special Operations Command, a one uh, a General, uh, Hugh, uh, General uh, Peter Schoomaker, <laughs> on my <laughs> civilian duties. No, I'm, I'm imagine this. Uh, you know, I'm just a reserve major. Yeah. Oh, hey, Major Schaefer, go brief the sink on on what you do in in your real life. And that briefing resulted in General Schoomaker looking over at his deputy and saying, "I want Major Schaefer read into able danger." So I had no idea that that one moment in time would change the complete trajectory of my life uh, to this to this moment in time. That one element, that one moment resulted in where we're at today having this conversation. Wow. And uh, Able Danger, for those who don't know what it is, was simply uh, uh, the offensive options that General Hugh Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, put together uh, at the direction of Pre then President Clinton for going after Al-Qaeda. Uh, this was after the Africa bombings, but before the coal. And uh, the idea was putting together an entrepreneurial group, the best of the best that they could find, because a lot of people didn't want to deal with this. 
and then doing something. And, and so the next day, I was read into Able Danger. And I read the op plan. And it's like, oh, my God, this is, this is the e-ticket to Disneyland. This is us, the United States, going to go kick some ass. Yeah. It's what you sign up to do. And so I was enthusiastic. Next thing you know, we're putting together this hybrid team of analyst operators and uh, clandestine, clandestine folks to do intelligence collection and that sort of thing. And using for the first time ever something we all know now is common is data mining. This was the first yeah. true military application. And your first your or your first big target was the ADA cell, is that correct? Yeah. So the, yeah. the yeah. idea was uh, how do you go about targeting a non-conventional, non-linear target that has that, that doesn't have a geographic boundary? You can't use normal targeting techniques. So data mining was brand new at the time. We put together Army Land Information Warfare Activity with Special Operations Command. And then that's how we put, started working. And uh, the basic idea was to develop options for, uh, as General Schoomaker said, the ranch to use. That's the, tier, the tiered units of a, you know, within Special Operations Command that we still can't talk about here. But you know, we were interfacing with them, talking about what they would require to act. So there's still two pieces of able danger to this day, which are still black that I can't discuss, that I couldn't even talk to Congress about. And those things uh, relate directly to some of the mystery, which still remains, of why it was shut down and not executed before 9-11, or uh, even during the run-up to 9-11, we were screaming about it. And that's what I had to testify to. That's what I uh, I basically ran into Phil Zelikow, the uh, staff director of the 9-11 Commission, while I was in Afghanistan, some of you read my book, Operation Darkheart. Uh, it covers my undercover work uh, as the operations officer uh, in Afghanistan for Defense Intelligence Agency, where I worked for uh, uh, Task Force 180 and Task Force 121, 121 being General, General uh, McChrystal's mm -hmm. Special Mission Task Force, uh, which I was the human support element uh, in. And boy, you know, I, I opened on an air assault with the Rangers, and I, I'm sitting there on the air assault, like, how in the hell did I end up on an aerosol? You know, it was kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, this is this is interesting. But my point being is that uh, during the time in Afghanistan when we were fighting Al Qaeda uh, and the Taliban, that's when I made my disclosure to Phil Zelikow and the 9/11 Commission, and that the rest is history. Next thing you know, I'm uh, assigned to Navy to, to Deep Blue because my clearance is being revoked, and nobody can figure out why well, my clearance is being revoked. It's about a, a bunch of nonsense that uh, the army wouldn't even consider charging me with. Uh, grand irony here, Jared, at the time that I came off active duty, I had these three allegations, uh, which the army looked at and promoted me to Lieutenant Colonel and DIA used the same allegations to revoke my clearance. Think about that. Yeah, How so, well, let's just explain to a lot of the audience what what it was that you were coming forward with. And you could, obviously, you're going to be able to explain this much better. Yeah. But from my understanding, as you were in the program, you guys were closely monitoring the Adacel, which was right. up to four of the pilots that piloted, that took over the, the hijackers of the 9-11. And right. you guys knew something was coming. And so the, they wouldn't yeah. allow you to brief the FBI on it. Right. Beforehand, and that's right. what resulted in our yeah. So explain explain that for everybody. One of the one of the real downfalls and failures of the of, to prevent the nine eleven attack. Uh, and I've said this to John Lehman, former Secretary of the Navy, to his face, who was on the nine eleven commission. He said nine eleven was a failure of imagination. I said no, with all due respect, Mr. Secretary, it's a failure 
of policy. The policy was to stop us from doing our job. Because in this case, we had identified via the data mining collection, two of the three cells which were lined up to conduct the 9-11 attack. That is to say, we found within our data targeting, linking cells uh, that were here in the United States to bin Laden directly. This is 99 and 2000, a full 18 months before the 9-11 attacks. We had come up and identified this. And in 2000, when we were trying to get people to pay attention, lawyers, DOD lawyers came in and said, oh, oh, oh. these people, while they may be terrorists, are here legally, you can't legally look at them. The Gorelick memo, Jamie Gorelick said, oh, you, you can't be looking at these people. It's like, they're freaking terrorists. They're like linked to Al Qaeda. And again, this is something nobody wants to talk about. Uh, even a, a guy named Joe Biden uh, was in the hearing on this uh, back in 2005 when we first went public on all this. Nobody seems to be all that interested now, even now. But the But what we came up with was the identification of his cell to include him, Mohammed Atta. And he was there as, as uh, uh, Mohammed uh, Al-Sayed, that he had an alias. And so the name was different, but that's him. And we had the data analyst who identified him confirm that. Wait, isn't that, isn't that enough though to say we have, a guy, we have a known terrorist with an alias in the country under an alias, which means forged documents to get into the U.S.? <laughs> One thing. One would think, and that's what we thought too, because when when we were told by the lawyers don't look, we said, <laughs> I don't think so. Let's. So I was at the time working with the uh, WFO, with Washington Field Office, on uh, uh, helping them target a, a terror group in, 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 in Athens, Greece, called uh, 17 November. So uh, the special agent in charge of that investigation, by the way, I actually went undercover with the FBI on that op. That's a whole other story for another day we could talk about. Uh, but I had to go undercover with the FBI in that operation to Athens in, in 2000. Uh, during because of that connection, that deep connection, and my being assigned to that, um, we actually used uh, uh, that connection to try to to link up the FBI with with Special Operations Command to pass the data. Three times, Jared, we we. It had lined up meetings with the FBI in Washington, with the with the Bin Laden cell to pass the information. All three times, lawyers stopped us, and that was one of the things we wanted resolved, which to this day has never been resolved. Why that information was not passed to WFO? Where's the noise on this? Like, what about all the families of of nine eleven victims and things like that? One. I, I, you would think once they, once you guys came forward in 2005 and started saying this, a lot of people would be making a lot of noise. I met with a number of the families and they were adamant about this. The Jersey girls, I met with them personally in New Jersey and I sat down with them. I gave a on record uh, conversation It's taped. Uh, I, they've never released it, but it's there. But uh, I was more than happy to explain what our perspective is. And, and, and I've been very clear on this. I don't know everything that happened that day. But I've tried to be very uh, clear to only talk about uh, those things which I directly have knowledge of. And so I've been very clear. I can't speculate about anything else. But on this issue, I know what we try to do. I know what we were prevented from doing. And I know there's been a continuous effort to suppress this. To include, and this goes back to my, you know, Tim Parlatori, uh, one of the, the lead investigator of the IG investigation in 2005-2006 uh, came forward and became a whistleblower himself and said, 
there was a cover-up. I was directed to throw you under the bus and ignore all the evidence. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Jared, no, I mean, this was this was reported to the ODNI IG in 2017, and somehow they're just not invest not interested in investigating. This is. I'm, I'm not joking. I mean, this has been oh. a, an ongoing complaint. <laughs> you know, I, I would say it's hard to believe, but having been part of something like like you're talking about yeah. recently with with government officials, I, I, I'm not surprised. I'm yeah. not surprised because this seems like one of those things of there were a lot of people in the chain that that would have mud on their face had this Absolutely. had had we had if we ever blow this thing completely open and they're all protecting themselves at this point. Absolutely. They can't, they, they refuse to come forward and say, I, I was part of the reason why this, this could have been prevented. Yeah, look, I, I've, I've said for a long time, the 9-11 truther movement uh, completely was a smokescreen to hide and avoid, help these, these bureaucrats avoid accountability. The, put, putting out these outlandish claims. So throwing out this whole 9-11 was an inside job, was just a counter, uh, it was an information operation that was a flood of garbage information to make people deaf to when real substantial allegations came forward. I mean, this is, I've been I've been talking about this type of IO campaigns that has been happening to us in the United States on social media for the last three years. Yep. Like, it's real. It's real. And I, and I saw it firsthand and uh, it's still ongoing. This is this is not like the story's been done. So we're still kind of mid-story here. So I appreciate well, your, I mean, the time to talk about this. Yeah, so let's get to the point where you, you fired your attorney and are now- yeah going after him because he jumped in on the wrong side. So, yeah, we've gone back and every time we had a victory, like, uh, you know, we won the First Amendment lawsuit on this. He he didn't do anything to follow up. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, we won. It's like, well, I want you to go after DOD to recover me to show that, you know, I was retaliated against. Here's Well, also, you, let's let's just add in that piece for everybody. The DOD bought the first 10,000 well, copies and destroyed them. They did. Yeah. <laughs> now, this was uh, the judge ruled that the army properly cleared the book. It was defense intelligence agency who came in and said, oh, 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 there's identities. There was no identities, but they, they insisted on coming in and doing a handful of, of, uh, of, of redactions, just five or six turned into uh, like 300 and something. I mean, they, they went through. <laughs> but the good news, Jared, is because they did this, they made it a bestseller. I mean, who doesn't want to read something you're not supposed to? Exactly. So I was on with Don Lemon on CNN uh, the week after the book came out. And he said, how do you feel about uh, the director of DIA interdicting on your book? I said, I want to send him flowers. I couldn't have asked for better marketing. I mean, this is amazing. You know, I, I, this is, this is amazing. So they, by their own incompetence, uh, they made it a bestseller. And then after the Fact, we won our First Amendment lawsuit. Turned out my lawyer didn't want to do anything. So we this is we filed Tim filed litigation regarding the fact that uh, he failed to, to take care of my interests, even though I actually wrote did, wrote in put in writing what I expected him to do. Did nothing. So that's that's another ongoing lawsuit right now. Are you guys able to come back out with an unredacted version since you won the since you won yeah. the suit? So I've talked to the publisher about that and they, they said, yeah, well, you know, it's still selling. So as long as it's selling, we're not going to, we don't want to change it. So <laughs> that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I, look at, I, I still get royalty checks. Like, okay, so 
So I, you know, I don't know what it is, but we, we now have the authority to publish an unredacted version, but the publisher, you know, I still, I don't know. I, I'm all for it. As a matter of fact, I think we'd like to do a revi revision of some of the new information that we learned. Uh, and by the way, uh, the people who were at Bagram with me cooperated, uh, co collaborated with me to write all this. So this wasn't just me. This was my boss uh, and several other folks who were on the leadership targeting cell who helped me write the, the dark heart story. So it, it, it's, uh, I think- Well, I think, I think, yeah, once you conclude with all of this, you add in, you can add in almost another half a book to this thing and then release the whole thing as a whole, unredacted and- Everybody that, that has read it is going to want to read that unredacted oh, version. They're, they're going to get upset with me. Any, anytime I say anything is the truth, they're going to get upset. Now, trust me, they, <laughs> they're going to fight me. They're, they're, they're never happy. Trust well, me. this, yeah, this is just a crazy, crazy thing. Yeah. <laughs> situation to be in. And, 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 you know, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it firsthand of being, it's dangerous when, when the guys at the top now there's things coming out that could potentially affect them. So this is when you see these cover-ups. This is when you see everything being hushed and ooh, like, like to see that your inspector general investigator himself to flip once investigating. That's insane. That and, should they be, and, they, and, and they won't investigate. And he's an investigator. It's like, hey, here's all the, here's all the things we did to Schaefer. Yeah, yeah, well, we don't really want to do that. What? I mean, are you still officially retired at least? I am retired. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, okay. I retired they didn't take that. So uh, I actually, my, my, my friend, my late friend and, and uh, uh, mentor uh, representative Congressman Walter Jones from North Carolina retired me in his office and a little ceremony and uh, uh, God rest his soul. He passed, uh, I think it was year before last. He was a great mm -hmm. man. And uh, yeah, look, I'm still retired, but I get to run a think tank. Now, so it's 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 retired, but I'm not. And then I've been asked to put the jersey back on a couple of times. Uh, it was publicly acknowledged I was doing something in the Bergdahl retrieval. Uh, I was asked to come back and help out on that. So it's been you know it's like being the mafia. You never kind of you never fully retire because you never leave. Yeah. <laughs> when we need the wolf, we call the wolf. <laughs> well, let's yeah, let's get into what you're doing now because it, this is yeah. a huge. This is a huge. Huge concern of everyone's right now. Uh, tell us, you're, 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 you're in charge of this yeah, whole so, division. So the London Center for Policy Research, named after my late, late boss, Dr. Herb London, we're based in New York and D.C. both. We focus on national security and constitutional uh, issues. Uh, so the one that overlaps, uh, in our judgment, is the Second Amendment. Uh, we have a very robust firearms industry, which is of great benefit to the Department of Defense and our allies. Uh, there, this, there's never been a better time for firearms, basic arms to be developed and fielded using the commercial sector and their money to do it and then have that technology available for the military. The SIG P320, uh, the M11, M17, M18 being a great example of that. So uh, we believe as a think tank that that benefit uh, is essentially symbiotic, that the benefit of having a great uh, commercial sector to the military, that military element actually benefits individuals like you and I. You know, I'm retired. I get, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer. I believe in exercising my right constantly. So that's why we are both putting together, uh, we've put together this Second Amendment uh, project within the London Center and we're working on standing up something called the Sentinel Society, something that's going to be a 501c4. We can talk about that some other day. 
uh, where we're going to examine uh, the issues of, of beyond Second Amendment, of issues such as body armor, uh, advocacy, and things like that. As a think tank, as a 501c3, we have to focus only on policy. So the two policy issues we're working, which I think you would appreciate, is, is simply this. First, uh, first point, Second Amendment suffrage. Second Amendment uh, uh, concepts that, that are, are very simple. Your Second Amendment right should be the same for you to execute in New Hampshire, where you can carry a gun openly or concealed, as New York. Uh, mm-hmm. There should be no diminution or difference between those two geographic locations because of uh, the, 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 the right we have. So the first off is, is suffrage or the idea of, of uh, universal uh, application of that freedom. That's yeah. very simple, but obviously people are, fight us on this all the time. And related to that is what we call essentially the basic standard response. Uh, we believe that once you have the right to carry, you should be able to carry any weapon of your choosing to counter any threat you may face. That is to say, if you are in New York and a guy comes up with a gun, you should be armed with a gun. If you believe your life is going to be in jeopardy, you should be able to exercise your right to your level of the perceived threat, not what the government or someone else tells you. That's it. Those are the cornerstones of our Second Amendment project. Uh, you know, Universal suffrage, universal franchise, the idea that you're Right should be equal all through the country. Your First Amendment rights are the same. Why aren't your Second Amendment rights? And then the idea that you should be able to have the ability to respond, to adequately and effectively respond to the level of the threat coming at you. So, so I, I don't, yeah. are you guys really diving into a lot of the suffrage cases where, you know, because I personally just have heard so many horror stories of someone traveling through New York or New Jersey Right. And then getting thrown in jail and them trying to process massive uh, firearm felonies against them when they were just, they were rolling through, like, and they were allowed to have everything that they had wherever they were coming from. Yeah. So the answer is yes. So we right now, believe it or not, we're actually looking at uh, partnering on some aspects of this with Rutgers University in New Jersey, where we want to examine uh, factually. Completely unemotionally. Uh, Jared, I, I am tired of the left uh, making this an emotional issue. Uh, guns are a technology. Cars are a technology. Cars are involved in all sorts of things every day. We don't talk about banning cars. So let's sit down and have an adult factual conversation about this. And the other thing I, I find interesting, and, and boy, I get in trouble for this all the time. I always point out to the left that they use a, a term created by Hitler to describe what they want to do. The, the Storm Kavir, the SG, the uh, STG-44, this, the, the, uh, the first assault weapon uh, was a term, uh, assault weapon, assault rifle, is a German Nazi term. And the left uh, uses this, we don't use assault weapons. There's no such thing as an assault weapon. Uh, we have rifles, which have features that look like an automatic weapon, but they, they have literally used this left-wing lingo to create an emotional perception. So we believe you need to get rid of all the emotion. Let's look at this factually. And when you come down to the stats, more people are killed every year by shovels than a so-called a rifle. rifle. Like you're, you're, we're still in sub 300s a year. And also if right. you start peeling 
if you start peeling the data back, one interesting point that I was looking at, and I would love for you to speak more to it, is you look at, at, at gun crime and violent crime, and you cross-reference that with how many, how many people committed those crimes that have legally purchased two or more firearms. Yeah. So look at, look at that because we all know, Hey, we, we can't predict if a criminal is going to be a criminal. And if they were going out to right. legally purchase a gun to go do something illegal. Okay. But let's take a look at how many Americans commit violent gun crime that have purchased two or more guns legally. And I'll tell you that number is going to be astoundingly low. So all the right. legislation and, pro and proposed rules and everything that they think that they're doing to fix a problem, it's going to be non-existent once they, the, you're not going to see a change in any of the data. You're not going to see a decrease in violent crime. I mean, we've seen a massive decrease. You know, our, our average murder rate per capita now per hundred thousand uh, people is below seven a year where in the early 1990s, we were at 12. So we're actually going right. down as our population's right. going up. <laughs> right. And, and again, if you actually take another chop of that, the only place you see the mass violent crime are in the inner cities, are places where law-abiding citizens are disarmed. And by the way, I'm going to bring this up because it's true. Uh, gun control was primarily started by uh, the Democrats who wanted to disarm minorities. So that's why you see this complete and utter uh, disarmament of inner city minorities, because this has been the goal of the, the of their party for decades, and that's why you see this this immense uh, 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 criminal act activity. It's and again, it's it, it, it's not about the gun; it's about the culture. It's about individuals who live in these places who are, are prone to being violent. So this is where again you need to look at the court issue, not the technology. Uh, but uh, this is something that we want to go into. And to your point regarding the, the stats, uh, I live in Virginia. Virginia has, uh, and right across the river is D.C. The crime rate between D.C., uh, where guns are controlled to this day, even though you can technically get one, uh, only criminals have the ease of use, uh, to be blunt. Northern Virginia, where I live, the crime rate is high. Is It's, 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 Almost nothing compared to that. And so the reason is guns are plentiful in the right hands. And criminals do uh, think twice. If they think they're going to go into a situation where someone is going to shoot back, they're probably going to rethink it and go to somewhere. They, they default to soft targets. Yeah, exactly. Who, well, who, wants, to, who wants a hard target? <laughs> they, go, they go to gun-free zones. Yeah. Right. So that, that's what we're working on. So we want to do, we're, uh, we've got a proposal out right now we're working to get funding for, which will examine this in, in, in great detail. We're looking at probably six months to a year to do the full study. But the idea is to be dispassionate, to be factual, and again, to, to let everybody look into this, no matter who they come from, what their background is. I, I do believe on the facts, on, on an unemotional argument, the idea of universal franchise and uh, the appropriate level that you or I judge to, that we need. If you want to carry a 45 with, with eight rounds, God bless you. If you want to carry a, a Glock with 18 rounds, God bless you. It should be up to you. Not well, you government. bring up a very good point earlier here that, you know, I've never thought of the argument is I can sit here in Texas and say San Francisco sucks. I can 
post San Francisco sucks on Facebook to my to my public page. I can go on Instagram and say, hey, everybody, San Francisco sucks and so does Nancy Pelosi. Now, if I go to California, does all of that become illegal? No, I can still do it. As right. of now, as of right now, let's not get let's not get too excited because I guarantee you, pretty soon California is going to be banning that too. But that you're absolutely right. We don't infringe on the First Amendment rights. Right. Every time we cross a state line, it doesn't change what I am allowed to say or post or be public about or shout in a in a square. Um, but we're we seem to have been perfectly okay with this. It's been the boiling frog syndrome. I mean, the, the left has demonized the technology using very sophisticated techniques that essentially allow people to think it's safety. I, I, boy, they, they constantly use this gun. Say, oh, it's not safe. You know, look, I'm telling you, I've been in combat. I've used guns uh, my entire career. Yes, guns fundamentally well, are unsafe. Flying is unsafe. Life is unsafe. But the idea is you, you train yourself, you're prepared, and you use that technology effectively based on not demonizing it, but understanding and embracing it. Well, I mean, here's, here's, a, here's a prime example, because it, it's almost like in, in, in your case, you know, with, with, with what you were doing with 9-11 and everything, the Sandy Hook shooter was reported to the police 30 plus times. Right. He was reported to the FBI twice. And look how fast... No one wanted to talk about that. No one wanted to say, hey, we need to, we need to look at what broke if 30 plus times this individual was and, and he and was even reported as as to having a plan or a hit list to attack a school. Right. Like, and we didn't react. So, so why isn't why isn't that the and, and like you're saying, let's demonize the technology that the guy has, but let's not. Let's not hold the people accountable that were that were warned about this time and time and time and time again. That's the issue. Every major shooting uh, and terrorist event recently has had the individual on the radar of the FBI. To include the recent shooter in, in Denver, he was on the radar. He was on the radar. He was mentally un, unstable. Oh, okay, well that's a clue. Uh, you know, uh, law enforcement goes with clues. We go with indicators as intelligence officers. But I'm saying there is a clear, there is clear evidence that something was not right. Uh, the shooter in Florida uh, at the school there. Uh, these things have a pattern to them. And the two things which I would argue we should focus on more than guns is uh, mental health and the potential uh, use of drugs to counter one's stability. One would could argue Ritalin and other. Uh, 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 mind-altering drugs used. To well, butrin, things like that, that that really freaking throw your chemical. So maybe yeah. that that's an indicator that that person, if they're saying, hey, I don't feel right, I feel like I'm going to go out and shoot people, uh, geez, maybe I didn't, you know, and I'm saying, I'm not, let me be clear so you two doesn't get on, on your butt on this. I'm just saying this, I'm quoting this, I'm not saying it. I'm saying if people use the information about someone's drug use, uh, and and they're saying they feel violent. That's something that should be examined. That's something that people should look at. That's a commonality. And also, the second thing is uh, law enforcement knowing this. Law enforcement seems to have some level of of uh, early warning, but they don't take it. 
And instead, they do this approach of, of making sure everybody's checked rather than checking on those who are most likely to commit an act of, of violence. That's the problem. Now, here, here's a really big question I'm going to have for you is sure. um, with your efforts up there and really taking the science and data approach to this, what message do you want to give to, to everyone else out there that are that's like me and and everyone else that you know may have served, may have not, but grew up in in somewhat gun culture. What should we be doing to counter the left's messaging? Because one big thing, one big thing I have brought up lately when I get into these heated arguments is, hey, shall not be infringed is no longer a good arguing point. You're not changing anybody's mind by just yelling and shouting. Right. This, the the amendment says shall not be infringed. It's like you didn't you you're not winning a new person onto our side by shouting that at them. Right. So how how do you feel it's it's best to message back towards anybody that is pushing out anti gun and hard and hard uh, anti two a legislation and support and things like that. So two ways. Uh, first off, remove the emotion. Try to get whoever you're talking to to look at facts. I uh, I was once uh, standing next to John McCain in his office, and I I said I said you know uh, John with all due respect I disagree with your philosophy regarding gun control because he was one of the, the the rhinos who did this. And I said, what is the difference between Tony Schaefer in Afghanistan standing next to you with a gun on his hip with a bullet in the chamber? By the way, what's the difference between Tony Schaefer standing next to you in Afghanistan, which I did? When I saw him there and standing before him in his office, is there any reason that I am less trusted because I'm now in front of you? And, and he didn't have an answer. <laughs> he didn't. And so that's my point. It's like, okay, you know, if you if you allow someone like me, uh, who now is retired, to who to take his experience and and be armed, where is there a an issue? Uh, I go around all the time armed. I was in the Costco recently checking out, and the guy recognized me. And he walked up, he says, uh, hey, uh, Colonel, uh, are you, I'll bet you armed right now, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. He says, thank God. I can't say this because I get in trouble, but I appreciate people like you being here because we know if something happens, you're going to help. So put it in terms that they can understand. It's like, you know, I'm not here as a threat. I'm here to counter a threat. And that's the idea is that the Second Amendment's not about uh, guns. It's about protection. It's about the idea of having that training, that will, that willingness to do something to stop others from being harmed. That's the way we can. We have to win this because that's the reality we face. So that's well, this this I'm going to pose you with a very interesting question: Is yeah. where are you at? You know, with being able to continue your rights on military installations because you're, what you're well, saying doesn't make sense oh. either. I could walk around Camp Victory with a bullet in the chamber and a loaded sidearm, but I can't do it on Fort Bragg. And, oh. you know, the last few years, we have seen active shooters on military installations and you're forcing people not to protect themselves. How is that right? It's not. And I, I've uh, taken this on. This is a decision made back in uh, the early 90s. Uh, it was actually Bush 41 who put together the paperwork and it was implemented in, in 92 uh, by the, the then brand new Clinton administration. And the idea was to disarm the military. It's unheard of. I, I don't get it. The people who are most able to, to and likely to be able to use a firearm are restricted from having, them. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what, 
Uh, well, I know why, but I, I don't want to get into that right now. It'd be another debate. <laughs> but the idea here is, yeah, we, you know, when I go on Fort Belvoir, I go off and get a haircut. Uh, I can't go armed because the moment I get caught, if I got caught, I would be, you know, the bad guy. Treated like a terrorist. Treated like, literally treated like a terrorist. Yeah. Yeah, because, because anybody I, I know that's accidentally left a firearm in their car or their bag or anything, the base cops and everybody wants to make this out like it's oh, yeah. some conspiracy. It's like, absolutely no, idiots. Like, this is just normal life. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, no, I, and I, we plan on taking that on as well. You know, uh, strangely enough, uh, I actually served for General Austin when he was a brigadier, the current SecDef. I don't think we're going to be getting along this time, but... but <laughs> But that's something that we want to bring to his attention. It's like, look, uh, a lot of, you know, I can make that point. I, I served in combat with you, General. Why, why, why is it now that those who served in combat under arms cannot be trusted to go on military installations under arms to be able to exercise their self-protection? It, it blows my mind, especially, yeah. you know, when we were all there in the early years of the war, like every single person had a gun on them. That's right. And that was fine. We were on a military base. We're good then. <laughs> we yeah. check out somehow over there. No, it's no, it, it, it is irrational. Again, going back to it's irrational. You need, we need to get, <laughs> get all this irrational. Oh, it's, it's dangerous. You know, walking across uh, the intersection in New York is dangerous. Seriously. I mean, it, you know, how many people get hit by taxis every year, but you don't ban taxis. So. So what are, what are some good resources for people to have the data, though? Uh, like I said, I think, I think our best movement forward is arming the audiences or arming, arming our audience with facts, with yeah. things to rebut every time someone says this. Where are good places for, for, for people to read up and study on the actual facts? Therefore, when they get in a heated firearm into a argument, they're hitting them back without emotion and, and just straight fact. So come to LennonCenter.org. We have a number of articles that our senior fellows have have put out. It's on our uh, it's resource. Plus, we interact with others. Um, what uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel retired Tim Wilson? He's he's British, by the way. Just but you'll get past that. It's okay. He's, he's one of us now. He's naturalized. <laughs> he's, he's our senior uh, 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 expert, uh, manager of our Second Amendment project. He's done a lot of work and research on this. So you'll see on uh, on our on LondonCenter.org a number of articles and works he's done to outline this. Plus, uh, there's some videos we've done on thought to action uh, uh, where we bring on others to talk about this issue. We have a number that relate directly to the Second Amendment. A lot of people's uh, questions can be answered. Plus, uh, right on our main website is uh, our, uh, our uh, joint effort with Six Hour. Uh, Tom Taylor and I did a first-time gun owner video. Uh, basically, the idea being, if you're going to own a weapon, we recommend you own it safely. So we did a joint uh, video with SIG. We're looking right now doing a secret, second, which we'd like to have you guys involved in, as a matter of fact, uh, looking at uh, philosophy of use. This basic the first video is just that. It's the, you pick up the gun. These are the things you have to do to be safe. This is how you shoot it safely. We had some of our senior fellows participate. But the next thing is, as you and I both know, uh, having a gun in a safe doesn't do you any good. What are you going to do with it? So we want to be able to examine the legal and operational realities we all face in basically three scenarios. Home use of a weapon in a, in a real event, 
uh, street use of a weapon in a real event scenarios, and then vehicle use of a weapon. Uh, these are all the things I've personally had to had to be involved in. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, as you know, I mean, you know, uh, you talk to people uh, all the time who have to actually use weapons in combat. Well, I would argue, Jared, that uh, a lot of people uh, only have the experience of going to the range and shooting at, shooting at static targets. That's not like real life. So the idea here is we want to give people an understanding like we've just gone through what, what the obligations are. Uh, but at the same time, what do you do to be prepared? Because being prepared and, and uh, ready to act, knowing what the circumstance you may face may, may bring is one of the best things you can do to both dispel fiction and prepare people to be invested in their own defense, which I think is the best thing we can do. Now, do you do you guys feel that with the next three plus years with this administration, you're more on the defense or are you guys going harder on the offense to try and ensure that stricter legislation isn't pushed forward? Like where's, where's your guys' stance right now? Kind of in a plan of Hey, what are what are you guys doing for the next three years? Yeah, so this is where I have to be a little bit careful being a 501c3 versus what we're, you know, we're going to create a 501c4 that we can be a lot more aggressive. So for now, speaking as the president of the London Center, we're going to examine the factual issues that relate to what's been observed relating to, for example, the previous uh, assault weapons ban that lasted 10 years and had no effect. You know, let's look at that factually. Let's examine what, you know, all the ins and outs. And then we want to examine factually the potential uh, um, damage to one's uh, uh, Second Amendment rights regarding uh, the legality of restrictions. Are they, you know, and what would be the effect? You know, is this a good idea? Does this actually add to public safety? Is what they're saying in legislation uh, going to actually come true? Or is it a facade that's simply going to add to uh, other criminal activities. So we want to examine that from the policy perspective, completely unemotional, and, and and work that out. So we're going to go extra hard over the next three years because it's very clear that this administration uh, has intention to essentially infringe on the Second Amendment, but not only infringe. Well, they're trying a double whammy. Like you yeah. see, as they're trying to introduce a new assault weapons ban, they're also trying to make it okay for cops to come take your guns. And uh, I've talked to a number of, uh, of, of sheriffs. Uh, I work for Sheriff Dave Decatur in Stafford County as his Homeland Security Advisor. And I've talked to him and another number of other sheriffs and sheriffs are very reluctant to go down that path for any number of reasons. I, I mean, who wants to? Even if it, me as a sheriff, as a sheriff deputy, if you told me, "Hey, you need to go into that that veteran's house and go get all his guns from him," no thanks. Yeah. Not not worth my not worth my sixty to seventy thousand dollars a year job. I'll right. see you later. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've talked to a number of sheriffs who take their oath of office uh, very seriously, and, and that, that would be going against their oath of office. So. Exactly. Like 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 we haven't even scratched that surface. Like right. let alone uh, not down with that. <laughs> not no. worth it. Like and then what what do what is this going to come to though? Like if, if which, I mean, where are we going to be at in this stalemate where you have very, very bad politicians and leader and leadership telling the, telling the guys on the streets to go do this and them saying, nah, we're good. And then what happens? Like, it, 
Are we gonna? No, I I think there's a if if um, that's why we want to fight so hard to avoid that. I think you go in that direction, you have a real potential for civil war. I'll just say it. Tim Pool keeps talking about civil war. You know, he's become a big believer in the Second Amendment. Has his little compound out in the state I won't mention. <laughs> uh, but I'm telling you, he's right. And uh, this is the issue. Uh, many of us believe that uh, that the, the right of self-defense is God-given, not uh, something a state can impart on you. And the moment the state decides, no, I disagree with you, then you've created a huge problem. And the mechanisms of state become compromised, potentially compromised. And I think that's where you, you, you have some real problems. There's, uh, by depending on who you talk to, 400 million guns in the hands of law-abiding citizens. And in law enforcement, I think in the military, you're talking about a fraction of that. So I just don't think it would be wise for the left to push the idea of confiscation, buyback, or removal of, uh, of weapons uh, from citizens who if don't they've never committed the crime they will never commit a crime i uh, think i think what like my prediction is is you're going to see one state try it and it's going to be an utter disaster like waco and then everyone's going to kind of shut up for about for about 20 to 30 years because it's going to go so bad i agree <laughs> yeah so no but i'm i'm really hoping that uh, through our work on, on on simply the policy, on simply the unemotional issues which are part of this debate will win out before anybody becomes uh, irrational to the point of where they start this idea of confiscating guns from law-abiding citizens. It's very, it's very dangerous and it would result in something very horrific, I believe. Well, if, um, <clears throat> if people want to help you in this crusade... Yeah. How can they do it and where can they do it? Like, how, how does somebody, I mean, are you guys taking applications for people to come in and, and do some of these workshops? Are you, like, how, how can people get involved? So uh, there's three ways. First, uh, you might laugh at this, but we were going to do an in-person Second Amendment conference examining the benefits of uh, the, the, the commercial sector to the military at the International Spy Museum in D.C., but Oh my goodness, all the trustees and attendees said, DC's not safe. We don't want to attend. <laughs> just saying. It's like, oh, okay, that's probably a good move. Anyway, I'm just saying we, we, we want to do that. We did. And the pandemic had a large effect on this too. But people simply said, we don't think DC is safe. So there's three ways. First, uh, by simply joining the London Center, we uh, have various levels of, of membership. Uh, we are. Not quite like Judicial Watch on that. You know, Tom Fitt and those guys do a lot of stuff. We have our membership available. People can go online and check it out. Uh, they can join us uh, on our social media to monitor what we do. We have paid subscriptions to that. So that's one area. We have something called um, Ask Us Anything where people can join, ask us questions. We do a lot of this. We have a, a really good interface and, and, and we mix it up pretty well. Secondly, uh, for those who actually want to participate, uh, we encourage people to uh, actually send us information regarding their background. If they have a background that they think that can help us uh, regarding research, uh, advocacy, then let us know. Uh, we have a very eclectic group of, of, of fellows. We've got uh, Jim Woolsey, my friend, director of CIA, Jim Woolsey, all, from Jim all the way over to Steve Hatfield, a virologist. Uh, my friend Bud McFarland, who was National Security Advisor to President Reagan, 
uh, a wide spectrum of folks who are committed uh, to doing the right thing. So that, you know, we are always looking for talent. And third, and I think most importantly, be involved. Uh, come check us out. Uh, you don't have to necessarily give us money, but we'd appreciate it because we are a public charity. Uh, but just uh, try to like, share, and subscribe to what we do. Uh, talk about, uh, make, to, to your point, make it a point of talking factually and, and getting information out factually about what's going on. So those are essentially the three ways that we, uh, we encourage people to be part of what we do and to help us work this effort. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll make sure to get the, the links down in the description. And how do people find you and, and talk to you, Tony? So um, I'm very active on Twitter. Got it. So people will uh, uh, see uh, interface. Uh, I got a direct threat last night mailed to me because of uh, someone not appreciating my Twitter, which is always interesting. Uh, <laughs> the, the, no, I'm serious. It's kind of like, man, I, I, these the lefties live on Twitter, and the moment you push back on them, you're a threat. So they will they will literally threaten you. Uh, and, uh, I had, I think three accounts suspended today. I got, it's like, you know, it's, it's amazing. So I'm on Twitter. People can see me there. T spooky. Uh, obviously the London center is a good place to, to correspond, uh, that sort of thing. And obviously I wrote, uh, the operation dark heart available on Amazon. People will enjoy it. Uh, it, it you know, it, uh, act, people talk about it. It reads like an action adventure. And I, I it wasn't, it wasn't an action adventure. <laughs> and, <laughs> Since the Pentagon doesn't like me talking about what I actually did, we wrote a novel called The Last Line. It's about the Southwest border. So we took things I did in other places and we put it into a a a, a tightly wound yes, fiction. 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 And we put it in the book and and, and based it in in, uh, in Mexico and the Southwest border. So people would I think would enjoy it. Awesome. That well, I enjoyed this a lot. Uh, Thank you, Jared. No, I enjoyed this. And I'd like you to uh Come and join our podcast sometime. Yes, please. And I'd like you to be part of our upcoming work to get the next Philosophy of Use uh, video up and you, you and you guys. I'm I mean, in. Right. Sign me up. 